0: Without question, uh, the story of the resurrection is one that lay at the very heart of Christianity. In fact, a- apart from the resurrection, you think, think about this. Christianity is what? It's, it's just, it's reduced. It's another religion. Uh, it's a leader. Well, maybe, maybe charismatic, spiritually wise, is, well, dead. The, the claim of the resurrection separates. It causes Christianity to rise above every other system of belief by pointing first to the day that Jesus overcame death, raising to life after three days. Then secondly, to the day when not only you and me, but the totality of our human race, going back to the garden, will again rise up from the dead. Minus, of course, those who remain alive at Jesus' second coming. But what if there's more than one day of resurrection? I want to ask this question today. Does the Bible talk about the resurrection or does it talk about more than one resurrection? In our podcast today, I want to challenge us to pay close attention to the way that the Bible talks about resurrection. I want to do so in light of the words that Jesus, in pre-incarnate state, is speaking to Daniel in chapter 12, the last chapter of of this great book, to the great leader, to the prophet Daniel. My, My goal is to help us see that the Bible uses the word resurrection in both a broad, physical sense, and a narrow spiritual sense. And, and I believe that it's important to distinguish the two. So one of the things that got me thinking about our topic is the volume of books that I've been privileged to read over the years regarding, in particular, the historicity of Jesus's resurrection. Uh, knowing that modernity consistently questions the factualness of the resurrection, uh, always just trying to tear apart arguments On behalf of its veracity. I've tried to make it my business to read as widely as possible, I'm sure you have as well, the works of historians and apologists within the vein of conservative humanitical practices, namely the work of writers who accept the Bible's claim to be the the true words of of God written through men. I have to tell you that, just glancing at my library shelves, I've kind of amassed an assortment of conservative literature around the subject of the resurrection. Uh, N.T. Wright's book, simply titled Resurrection, I think it's a must-read. It's thick, uh, theologically speaking. Uh, Few have exhausted the collective tools of research, archaeology, and biblical commentary to the degree that Wright has. Um, But I think it's just worth the read. On a more popular note, books like Sean McDowell's, if you haven't read Sean, just a great writer, Evidence for the Resurrection, or uh, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson's book, Body of Proof. They, they kind of stand out from the crowd. Oh, and I, I'd be a miss if I didn't point you towards a, a debate in book form, uh, the title of which is Jesus' Resurrection Fact or Figment. Uh, this is a debate between one of my favorite apologists, Dr. William Lane Craig, and Gerd Ludemann. Um, I'll save the suspense, by the way. Dr. Craig wins the debate, hands down. Nonetheless, I encourage the reading of the book. There, there's numerous books and even more numerous journal articles written over the years, along with those still being written, still being debated, which seek to speak into the evidence for the resurrection. There are far fewer books, however, that deal with the question I want to set before us today, the question of how many resurrections we as Christians should expect in the eschatological era. So you do know there is disagreement, right? Not not simply within the ranks of conservative versus more liberal theologians, but actually among conservatives themselves. Some indicate that in the end times, we should expect two distinct resurrections, while others, self included, hold to the more classic Christian understanding of one resurrection to come. So the question, from where do these disagreements emerge? How is it possible for two parties, both of whom approach the Bible as the literal word of God, to end up in two very different places with regard to a teaching that's fundamental to the church, the resurrection? Here here I'm going to tell you that it's passages like the one in front of us today, Daniel chapter 12, that create the divergence I should remember where we left off last week. In chapter 12 of Daniel, we meet the old prophet nearing his last days on earth. He's admired. He's respected. He's consulted as the instrument through whom God has led Israel through the dark night of exile in Babylon. At this point in his life, you know, we might look at him and say, well, Daniel, you should feel a sense of peace, joy, satisfaction. Yet, where do we meet him? We meet him at a point where he's filled with fear and actually a heavy heart. Remember why. Daniel knows that his end, personally, is near. Throughout the 70 years which he's endured, he's prayed for one thing, that God would set his people free. Those who've lived in exile with him, he's prayed that God might lead them back to the homeland, to Jerusalem. So the good news is that as Daniel has prayed, he's also managed to live to see God free his people in a political sense through an edict through Cyrus, the Persian king, who's declared Israel free of the bondage placed upon them by the nation Babylon. With the fall of Babylon to Persia, Israel is free to return to Jerusalem. That's the good news. (laughs) His counterpart, however, is the truth that while free, much, if not most, of Israel has not begun to live into the freedom that's been proclaimed. The people of God have hesitated to act on the promise of God. To put this into as simple a term as possible, the temple in Jerusalem still lay in a state of disrepair. And Daniel is sad. It's at this moment then that Jesus, again in preincarnate pre-incarnate state, appears to Daniel holding hope in his hand. As chapter 12 begins, Jesus is trying to help Daniel understand that his prayers have been heard, that Israel will return to Jerusalem, that the temple will be rebuilt. But there's more going on, Daniel. There's more going on. Jesus begins to move Daniel beyond, far beyond, the time in which he lives, showing him things that are to come, even to the end of earth's time. Here, he shows Daniel that there are two ways to think about what he, God, is doing. Number one, in the immediate sense, Israel will return home. The pathway back to Jerusalem has been established. But there's another homecoming. That for Daniel and the people of his time lay further out and into the future. Namely, our return home, to our eternal home. What Jesus is doing in these words is taking Daniel to that very end. Daniel, I want you to come home, but it's not Jerusalem. I want you to come home to a new earth that I will create. Now, last week, we looked at the truth that as we move closer and closer to the end, the world that we are living in gets darker and darker. In fact, there will be in the last period of history on earth, a loosening of the constraints that Jesus has set against our enemy. Uh, If you haven't listened to last week's podcast, do so. We talked We talked there about the fact that ahead of us lay a time when demons. This is an example when demons will be given authority to kill human beings with power which they do not have today, given their bondage under Jesus. This time will not go on forever. It will be cut short by a God who acts in mercy towards those who belong to him. Now, this time will culminate with the great battle, Armageddon, followed by the resurrection Or is it resurrections? I want you to listen to these words. Allow me to read Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. What I want you to listen for are any words that might make you think that there will be more than one resurrection. See see if you can pick them out. Are you ready? Lord, uh, as we read these words, give us your wisdom, your direction, and your insight. We pray. Amen. Here we go. Again, this is Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, quote, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So did you catch it? What, what word or words in that scripture cause people to pause and, and maybe even struggle with or suggest that there might be more than one resurrection? The word, of course, is the word, quote, many, end quote. I want you to listen to the verse again. Quote, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, end quote. Here's the argument. Because this verse of Scripture does not utilize the term all, as in, and all of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. There, there, are ever, there are conservative Christians who find themselves suggesting that this must not be the final resurrection, because, if it were, they suggest, would not the text here use the term all? After all, the resurrection, the Bible tells us, is that time where every knee will bow to Jesus, Philippians 2.10. This verse doesn't say that. It says many. Not all or every, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. Oh, and this passage is not the only place in the Bible that uses language that might make one believe that there will be more than one resurrection. Revelation chapter 20 joins it. I want to look at these words. Remember, in the Revelation chapter 20, John, like Daniel, is taking us to the end of time. Uh, In chapter 20, we're privileged to glimpse into heaven itself, where we see the souls of martyrs. I want you to listen to these words and try to pick out any that might cause you to say, hmm, is there more than one resurrection? Revelation chapter 20. Quote, also, writes John, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. Well, here the idea of multiple resurrections becomes more explicit. The scriptures point to a first resurrection, implicitly suggesting that there's what? Another resurrection. So you have to ask then, what do verses like the one before us in Daniel And then this verse in Revelation, what do they mean? Is there more than one resurrection? And it's here the road divides. Within conservative Christianity, there are two views. View number one, I will disclose to you, this is my own view, and that of the church body that I'm a part of, answers the question in a classic way with a resounding, no, there are not two or three or four resurrections. There's just one. And it will occur at the end of time, post-Armageddon, at the return of Jesus. Just one resurrection. That's view number one. View number two, how by many today, including conservative theologians, oppositely suggests that there are two distinct and different physical resurrections. These are the two views. And how each understands the resurrection influences how you understand what Daniel or the Revelation are talking about. So, allow me to do this. I want to expand and contrast each view prior to coming back to what I believe is the meaning of the words given to Daniel in chapter 12 by pre-incarnate Jesus. So, I'm going to begin with um, the view that states that both Daniel and the Revelation are talking about physical resurrections, two of them separated from one another by a thousand-year period. Follow me on this. This view, typically associated with a form of eschatology, end time theology called premillennialism, which suggests the following sequence of events for the end times. So I'm going to give you this kind of this rundown. Just follow me. This is a picture of what will happen in the end time according to those um, who suggest there is more than one physical resurrection. Here, here's the sequence. Number one, they see well, this whole period of time will start with the rapture. This is the belief that prior to what we've been calling the half a time, all Christians who are living on earth will be raptured off of the earth into the presence of God. They'll be removed from earth, taken to heaven. In this view, Christians will not have to endure the tribulations described in the last period of earth's history. Number two, the first resurrection. At the time of the rapture concurrent with it at the same time there will also be according to this understanding a first resurrection who's resurrected well all those who have received jesus as their savior from adam forward to the point of the first resurrection these two are resurrected and then taken to heaven removed from the tribulation the hard time that takes place on earth number three tribulation half a time again according to this belief once the living Christians and the now resurrected believers are taken into heaven, there begins the half a time or tribulation on earth. This goes on for seven years. And it's believed that during this period of time, those who remain on earth are given the chance to come to faith in Jesus. So we've got the Christians in heaven. But now if, you, if you're if you on earth, you're going to be given a, a another chance to come to to faith in Jesus. Some go so far as to suggest that it's during this period of time that all Jews will come to faith. Number four, the return of Jesus. Once this seven-year period concludes, those who hold this view believe Jesus will return to physically reign on earth along with those who've trusted him for a period of 1,000 years. And it's after that thousand-year period that the second resurrection will take place. So the second resurrection is the resurrection of the unjust, those who've not trusted Jesus as Savior. This is that group of people who are judged and separated for hell. So now we have two resurrections. The new heaven and the earth, then, begins for those who've trusted Jesus And hell begins for those who have not. Two physical resurrections. Now, follow this. If this is the view that you hold, then what Jesus is describing to Daniel in chapter 12 is the first resurrection. The term many is used by Jesus to indicate that not all are being raised and taken to eternal life. No, Jesus' words refer exclusively to a first physical resurrection of those who trusted Jesus as Savior. That's that view. But there's a second view, one that I hold, and it works differently. This is the view that I and the church body that I'm a part of, which suggests that in no instance does the Bible ever describe more than one physical resurrection. In fact, this is why the classic and historical creeds of Christianity, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and Athanasian Creed, refer to a belief in one and only one resurrection. These creeds reflect what Christians have believed for centuries There is one physical resurrection. That said, there is another type of resurrection that the Bible does describe. It's not physical, but spiritual. It is this, that the Revelation is describing, when it uses the words, this is the first resurrection. I'm going to say this as simple as possible. I believe that when the Revelation talks about the first resurrection, what it's referring to is our spiritual resurrection, namely the birthing of our faith. In Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we are what? We are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Now think about that. Paul is saying if you are apart from Jesus Christ and faith in him, you are dead. Now are we physically dead? No. But are we dead? Yeah. How? Spiritually. Now what happens when God works faith in our lives? We come to life. And guess what? There's There really is no better word to describe what coming to faith in Jesus means than the term resurrection. Our first resurrection occurs at that time that the Spirit, working through word and sacrament, brings us from spiritual death into spiritual life. As clearly as I can say it, then, classic biblical Christianity understands that during our lifetime, the Spirit of God is seeking to bring us to faith through word and sacrament, as He does We do have the power to push the spirit away, to deny Jesus. When we die then, our soul goes immediately to one of two places, heaven or hell. Following the half a time in Armageddon, Jesus will return, and it is only then that the physical resurrection takes place. At the physical resurrection, there will concurrently take place the judgment of all mankind. Those who have trusted Jesus as Savior move forward into eternity to live out on the new earth Life with God. Those who have rejected Jesus move into an eternity apart from God in hell. Now, understood this way, what Jesus is showing Daniel in chapter 12 is the fact that the many, i.e. the large number of people who form human history are headed one direction, toward eternity. Eternity, either with or without Jesus, depending upon one thing, faith. Now, one more question. Why is all of this even important? Why was Jesus showing Daniel at the last part of his life what's going to take place at the very end of time? Well, let me give you a word. The word is mission. I want you to start by thinking about this from the perspective of Daniel. What is God really saying to Daniel? I'm going to put this into my own words, hopefully, you'll make sense of it. Here's what I believe God is saying to Daniel. Daniel, I know you're sad. You want to see Israel return to its home, Jerusalem. But there's more going on. You see, Daniel, what got Israel into trouble in the first place, what caused this 70-year period of exile that you've just lived through, is one thing. My people lost a sense of mission. I didn't put Israel here on earth to live by themselves in Jerusalem. I put them into Jerusalem to be a light to the world. Because you see, Daniel, Jerusalem is not home. New earth is. Eternity is. And Daniel, in the time that you have left on earth, I want you to help Israel, not simply return back to Jerusalem and build a temple. But Daniel, can you help my people return home with a new sense of urgency? Can you help them restore Israel Can you help them have a new sense of mission that knows that the resurrection day is not far away and souls are at stake? I believe Jesus is showing Daniel this picture because he wants this trusted prophet in the last days of his life to use his influence to point Israel back to its mission, which is what I believe makes this word so relevant for you and me. Here's how I'd like to close today. I want to tie three questions into this scripture. I'll move them quickly, encouraging you to give them a little bit of thought. Question one. How do the words of Jesus to Daniel in chapter 12 help you and me recognize the Bible's emphasis on the truth that this world is not our home? St. Paul said it this way. We are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That's 2 Corinthians 5. How do you find these words affirming, the idea that I'm in the world but not of it? With the real question being, how am I serving those who are stuck in it, that don't know anything other than the emptiness of this world's successes or the brokenness of its hurt? Question 2. Scale of 1 to 10. On a scale of 1 to 10, where's your head? Where's your heart today, right now? In the last 24 hours, what portion of your time have you spent focused on how God is calling you to be involved in the life of another that is apart from Him? Do you find yourself throughout the day thinking about people in your family or your neighborhood or your workplace that God is calling you to? Or is your head and your heart more focused on this home, the world? your to-do list, the events that you have planned, the escape that you're getting ready to take. Man, I need some time off, scale of one to 10. With the 10 being, I, I find myself thinking regularly about God's call, about this mission to bring others to know Him. And one being, I do think about God's calling for a minute or two. Then, just like that, I'm swept back up and into the immediate stop of the day. Where's your head? Where's your heart? Right now. Question three. What is one step that you might take this week to set a reminder in front of you that God's calling is bigger than this home? It's bigger than my to-do list. It's bigger than all the stuff the world uses to lure me into busyness. I have to tell you, I watched a YouTube this week from former Navy SEAL David Goggins and in it he talked about his morning routine. Something he said kind of stuck with me. He said, the last thing I do every night before I go to sleep, I lay out everything that I'm going to focus on the next day. I just lay it all out. I visualize myself going through the day. I listened to that and I thought, how do I do that with God's mission? I mean, like Goggins, I I want to be locked and loaded each day for what God has in store for me. Unlike Goggins, I'm really not sure what God's going to have in store for me each day. I can tell you this, it probably won't be on my calendar, but I have to be ready each day to listen to the Spirit in his oh-so-quiet call. If I'm not, I know me. I'll get so busy with the things of this world, I'll miss it. So here's one thing I've been doing. I start every day super early, 4.30 a.m. I'm committed to Scripture first. I tell the Spirit every day, Today, let me hear you. Please, let me hear you. The first thing then that I have set in front of me when I walk into my office is a little sign that says, Hoka, hey, it's Cherokee Indian. It's a war chant. You know what it means? It's a good day to die. Hey, Luke, it's a good day to die. Die to all the stuff on your calendar. Die to all the things you think are important. And be resurrected. God, help me rise up today, ready to embrace what you have in store for me. Daniel said, God, I know you're sad. You want to go home. You want your people to get back home to Jerusalem, but don't forget where home is. It's not here. And don't forget that the most important thing that you can do, and I know you're old, Daniel, but maybe it's the most important thing that you will do in your life, is to point Israel back to its mission, to the calling that I have given you, that I have given Israel to be my light in a world that is getting dark. Well, that's all for today. I thank you for listening to uh, this podcast, and want you to know I continue to just pray for you and your families. I would ask the same that you would pray for me. Until next time, have a God-sized.